You ready? Yeah. All right. Welcome to Go Ahead. I'm listening. I'm Melanin Minded. Podcast. <laughs> no, <I'm> just, <laughs> Who are you? I'm Prof. And I'm Cam, and we're your co-hosts. Um, today we have a special episode um, that my brother uh, Monte is going to be calling in. He's currently um, in prison. So as soon as he calls in, we just gonna get right into it. Um, as we're waiting, we want to start off with what we want to start off and enc- encouraging the people <laughs> yeah. to do. Go to counseling. Well, yeah, go to, go to therapy. Not just that though. We want to um, definitely encourage everyone to go to therapy. We also want to encourage y'all to um, follow us on social media, on our um, Instagram page. Go ahead, I'm listening. Um, to go to whatever podcast app you use, whether that's Apple or Spotify or SoundCloud and um, subscribe and like the podcast. Um, give us five stars, please. Give us feedback. Tell us what you think about it. Be candid. We can take it. Yes. Um, and hit us up in our DM. You can email us at um, melaninminded713 at gmail.com. If you're interested in being a guest, um, we want to hear from y'all. This is for y'all. We really are looking forward to this episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, the opportunity to hear what a man have to say from his perspective is always cool. Most men don't have the ability to kind of be in tune with their experience. Um, they generally deny it. Um yeah. All right. Here we go. Wherever you want to start from, just kind of allowing you the space to um, tell your story about like your process to get to where you are today. Um, really gain some insight into your experience. I think you've been locked up for 25 years. Yeah, this is number 20, May 31st, it'll be 25. All right. Um, so where do you want to start? You want to start with like your childhood, with like being adopted? It's up to you. I don't mind talk about anything, you know. It's, it's, I said it's my childhood that shaped a lot of my beliefs and a lot of things that I practiced growing up. But my earliest memory from childhood was when I was three years old. And I remember I was holding on to my mother. She was holding me. And this officer and a woman who I now know was a social worker was taking me away from her because the state deemed my mother unfit to raise me. And I remember my mother was screaming hysterically and I was screaming and she was holding on to me. And the officers pulled me away. And when the officers pulled me away and they finally got me away from her grips, they stuck me inside the car. And they kept pushing my mother away and they kept pushing her away. And inside the car, they drove me to a foster home. And inside that foster home, once they stuck me inside, took me inside, I remember running to the front window, and I beat on that front window for a long time. And it seemed like my mom would never come because I was always waiting for her to come, and I would holler for her. And then I remember Bay telling me if I keep beating on that window, because she let me beat on it for a while, but then she got tired of it. She told me she was going to whoop me if I didn't stop. So I ended up stopping and just falling to the floor. And that's the earliest memory I remember. Hmm. Uh, me and my mother being together and uh, and that shaped my belief 
as to officers, because I remember from that moment on, I always believed that officers were no good. And I didn't know how impactful that moment in my life was. And uh, in foster home, I always, in foster care, I always wanted to be with my biological mother. But the earliest memory that you have is traumatic. Yeah, that's significant. The earliest one that I remember? Yeah, which is one of the ways memories work. Um, like, we tend to remember the things that have uh, the heightened emotional... Uh, this aspect. call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. We tend to remember the things that have, like, the, the, the greatest uh, emotional impact, whether that be our happiest memory or our most, you know, traumatic or saddest memory. Yes. No, it's true. I, I agree with you 100% because I remember that I used to be so frustrated about that. And, and, and uh, I used to always wonder how could a person that loved me could treat me like this? And mothers aren't supposed to treat their kids like this. And I would get mad. I remember walking around. I used, I used to just be mad when I would go over people's houses and their mother would be there with them. Mm. And they would be like having moments where they would get gifts from their mother like Poppy. Poppy was my next door neighbor. And his mother bought him everything. And I remember when I used to go visit him, I used to try to break up all his toys before I left because I knew when I got home, I wasn't going to have no toys to play with. And plus I was mad because... His mother just showed me love and affection, and I was just always jealous of him. And it's crazy how that is. And uh, growing up, going to school, I hated school because I didn't know how to read. And in foster care, nobody really took the time to guide and nurture me the way that I needed to be. I remember uh, when I used to go to school, and uh, as I got older, because they passed me along from grade to grade. And... As I got older, I started to realize that I didn't know how to read. And the teachers, it seemed like to me that they were picking on me because they knew that I couldn't read, and they were calling on me anyway. But as I got older, I realized that they may have been trying to help. But at that moment, I used to always be like, why is this teacher calling on me? When she knows that I can't read, or when he knows that I can't read, I said, they're always picking on me. And I used to get mad. And... and because of the embarrassment, because of other kids laughing at me, they would laugh and uh, they would make fun of me. And when we would go out for recess, I always found myself getting into fights because I was so frustrated and so mad that anger would get misplaced. And when something went wrong with a basketball game or something went wrong in a football game or when we was out there kickball, then I would either hit somebody extra hard to make them mad or I would say something. And next thing you know, we'd be in the bathroom and we'd be fighting. And that's how I would uh, displace my anger from being frustrated. And uh, it was just like that, you know. And uh, coming home, I always had so much freedom. It was like they really didn't care as long as I came in before the streetlights came on. I was always sent to the park because the park I was able to get free lunches. And while I was able to get free lunches, as long as... Uh, it was me and John and Frank. Frank was in a foster home three houses down. And we would always go and get the free lunches. And uh, as long as we got the free lunches and came back and we was in one piece, everything was all right. But everything was unsupervised. And a lot of times we would just go to get the free lunches and then we'd be roaming the streets of Los Angeles. And we could go anywhere. How old were you? Just as long as... 
when I started roaming the streets, when I started walking the streets of LA, I was five years old. Mm. Because Daddy used to send me to school by myself. She would teach me, she would be like, okay, show me how to get to school, show me how to get to school. And I would be like, okay, baby, we go down this street. And she'd say, what do we do at street life? She had trained me. And she said, what do we do at street life? And I said, oh, at street life, we stop. And I said, if the light is red, we stop. And we look both ways. And then once the light turns green, if no cars are coming, we run across the street. And I used to run across the street. I used to be like, come on, babe, come on, babe. And then we walked the rest of the street. And when we get to the next flight, because there was two busy streets that we had to pass before I got to school. I went to West Vernon Elementary School. And uh, once I showed Bay that I could get to school and showed her that everything was all right and I knew how to cross the street, there were times where Bay would say, okay, go ahead on and go to school. And I would go to school. I was five years old. And I would leave the house and I would go to school. But some of them times when she would take me to school and when she would send me to school, she would stop off to get something from the liquor store or she would stop off and get something from the donut shop. And this is where I started really acting out because I started stopping off at the donut shop. And what's crazy is back then, I used to think that when I was going inside these liquor stores without her supervision, that I was being slick and I was getting away with something. Because I used to go inside the store at five years old, six years old, and walk around and put things in my pocket. And it was candy, or uh, chips, something that I seen that I wanted, and I would end up walking out the store without paying for nothing. But for a long time, I used to believe that I was slick and I was getting away with something. But as the years rolled on, and, and not until recently, really, when I really evaluated, and I said, ain't no way in hell that man knew that I was coming in that store every single day and walking out without buying nothing or without paying for nothing. I said, that man was just letting me get away with and I don't know why he did it, but there's no way that a five-year-old can come inside of the store every single day and take something and not and, and leave without uh, without having anything. So I come to the realization that he just let me do it. Uh, I thought all these years, I thought that I was being slick at that five, and that's what reinforced my belief that I was slick at still and I was good at this. I started when I was five and I ain't never been caught. And from there it graduated. I went from uh, stealing candy to uh, chips to going to stealing clothes to stealing shoes to stealing toys. Oh man, we used to do a lot of stealing. Every time we went to a department store, we would, I would take something. Or if me, John, and Frank was together, we would all take something. And then we'd brag about it and uh, see who could get the most or uh, the different types of things that we could get. And this was, at, uh, this was between 5 to 10. I was adopted from 5 to 10. I was in foster care from 3 to 10. And uh, all of this was happening from the age of 3 to 10. And it was, it was shaping a lot of what I believed and a lot of what I thought. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just thought I could get away with it. And, and the truth is, I, I wasn't being slick. I was just giving chances. And uh, I failed every last one of them. You said you That's failed? Crazy.
they knew about, but they didn't really say too much about. And I could get into that. Okay. This is Global Link. You have a prepaid call from... Marta. An inmate at the California State Prison, Solano, Vacaville, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5... Thank you for using Global Tail Link. First of all, fuck Global Tail Link. Anyway, go on. Yeah, uh, you said you can get into the foster uh, care system. Oh, yeah, the foster care. The foster care system. Living inside foster care, and this is why when people come through today and talk about they want to foster care, I always want to, uh, I'm talking about the program that I'm in right now. I always try to get them to see that it's okay to talk about a lot of the things that happen inside foster care because today I'm starting to realize that it's more common than uncommon. And what I'm talking about is not the physical abuse, but it's the sexual abuse. And the sexual abuse to me was very common. And it seemed like it was well practiced amongst all the kids because every time a new kid would come, they always knew about it or something had always happened to them. And the same experience was with me. I think I was like four years old when Sydney came. And uh, when Sydney came, he was an older kid, and I would want to say I was four. Sydney was like about 10. And 10, Sydney had already knew because he had went through abusive, abusive, abusive childhood. And uh, Sydney had started to molest me at an early age. And uh, I remember it happening from four all the way until Sydney had left when I was seven. And then he left, but then he ended up coming back. And when he came back, it continued. But he was the older kid, and we were the younger kids, and all we were doing was what we were told because we didn't know no better. And at that early age, I didn't know no better, and the girls that came to the system didn't know no better. And I remember one time, this uh, new girl had came, and Sydney was like, okay, and he was teaching us. And I was like, at this time, I was like six years old. And we had went to this department store, and they told us, they told us all to stay in the car. It was me, Sydney, and her. And this was, uh, Sydney had got us out the car and he told us that guys are supposed to put their penis inside of a girl's mouth. And I had ended up doing this to this little girl. I put my penis inside her mouth. And he said, now you're supposed to pee in it. And I didn't think nothing of it. I did what I was supposed to. And I ended up using the bathroom inside of her mouth. And she pulled away coughing and gagging
it was like I had to prove myself as a man. It was like, okay, now I have to make you hurt just as much as I'm hurting to show you that I'm just as enough of a man as you are. But the crazy part about it is they had no idea of what was going on inside my head. They didn't know about my thoughts. They didn't know about my childhood. They didn't know what was going on. It was all internal. It was all me. It was me thinking that I had to do something or that I had to prove something or that I had to show my dominance. It was, it was, I was always having to prove myself or show myself that I was just enough as a man as them because I always felt uncomfortable. I always felt like I was less than a weak. And it's crazy how that impacted me. But uh, it, had, it, had, it had a huge impact. And uh, I, like I said, I shared because uh, it's, it's more common. It's more common than it is uncommon. Sure. And the more that I'm behind these walls and the more that I'm sharing with these people, as I share that story in here, it allows other people to share their stories. And that's the reason why I say it's more common because a lot of people hold it in, but as I share, they start to share their stories and they start to feel comfortable and uh, they start to share about what happened in their childhood as well. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 it was a lot growing up. It was a lot growing up and I went to and, uh, and it was sad because at the age of 10, I had developed this outlook on life. And it was like those that were entrusted to take care of me and to make sure that I was safe and secure failed. And I used to always blame that. I used to always blame foster care. I used to blame my mother. And what's crazy is uh, is uh, I used to be so mad at the system. I used to be so mad. And I used to be like, how could y'all say that? And you took me away from my mother and said she was no good. But then you stick me into an environment that was just the same. It was just as no good. And I said, but didn't nobody come and didn't nobody check on us. As long as the house was okay, then everything was all right. Everything else behind the scenes went unnoticed or untalked about or, or, or just left left alone. As long as we were appeared on the outside to be okay. Sure. And, and that used to frustrate me. Nah, so, uh, yeah, and then a lot of my beliefs, I had already had a dislike for the police because I thought they were the ones keeping me away from my parents. Authority, period. I did not like authority, whether it was strict teachers, whether it was principals, whatever the case may be, I was always rebellious because teachers used to make fun of me because I didn't know how to read. They used to pick on me, so I just blamed them all, and I looped them all in that one category, and that's why I said that. It was a sad situation because to take a child at 10 years old that was developed like that and stick him into an environment where you have this loving parents, these people that really, really want to give this child a chance, it was, uh, it was real sad because I didn't know how to connect. I didn't know how to allow them to love me the way they wanted to. And uh, I pushed away. When I should have been embracing, but I wasn't trusting the process. I wasn't trusting at all, and uh, really, I just, I just, I wasn't trusting, and, and I didn't know how to let these people into my life, no matter what they did. And I mean, uh, it was crazy because I remember them now so much trying to help me, especially when they did when I didn't know how to read. When they found out that I didn't know how to read, it was crazy. Yeah, I don't think mom and dad were aware of how much work and how much trauma you had. I think that they were idealistic, mom in particular, about um, 
you know, I'm just going to adopt this kid. And, um, and I don't know that they were ready for <laughs> everything that you came with. Yeah, no, I know, I know they weren't. They weren't, and that's why I see so much behind the scenes that people don't know because they just aren't told. They, 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 it's like everything is okay as long as this person looks good or appears to be all right, and they don't know what's under the surface. And I, I already know that it's, it, believe you me, it's not their fault, and, and, and they tried to do what they could. And the reason why I say that is because mom actually paid to try to have me talk to somebody. And uh, she paid twice to have, for two therapists, to have me sit and talk with this woman. And the first time, I just sat in that room, we said hello, and I sat in that room for that whole hour and didn't say not one word. Mm -hmm. But I was 15 years old, and they put me inside this room with this woman, and I didn't know this woman. And here it is, I already got trust issues with women. I didn't trust women growing up, Based off of my mother constantly lying to me, constantly lying over and over, saying she was going to come get me, we were going to be a family. And uh, that never happened. That never happened. Or... So trusting people was just hard for me. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't open up to this woman because I didn't know her. And then she told my mom and dad that uh, I didn't say nothing. And they were like, okay, well, maybe next time. And they paid for another session. And I still sat in that room and didn't say not one word. And uh, then they were like, okay, well, we're not getting nowhere with this, so let's try something else. And I mean, they tried. They tried to get teachers to talk to me. They tried to get uh, coaches. They tried to, They tried friends. They tried all types of people, but they didn't know what was up under the surface. And, and, and I don't fault them for that. But it was, it was just hard for me to open up to people to trust people. And... Uh, and, and, and it was real hard because I started to become resentful, especially when, when they learned that I didn't know how to read. Because I remember Jamila trans, uh, challenged me. We were all, on our way on vacation going to Ohio, and Jamila challenged me to a reading contest. And I said, all right, all right, let's go. And I knew I couldn't read, but she said uh, she had a stopwatch. And she said, look, I'm going to read this page, you time me, and then I'll time you when it's your turn to read. And I said, okay. And she read my I, I timed her. And I don't even remember how fast it was. But all I knew is that I needed to beat her. And I couldn't let her beat me. So when she gave me the book and it was my turn to read, I just skimmed over real fast and took a few moments. And then I said, okay, I'm done. And I said, all I, had, all I knew was that I, I just had to hurry up before her. And when I said I'm done, she, t- she pressed the stopwatch and she said, wow. You fast. <laughs> and that caught mom's attention. That caught my mom's attention. And mom said, let me see, let me see. And she looked at the stopwatch. And mom said, boy, you ain't read that page that fast. And I said, yes, I did, because I was a huge liar. And I said, yes, I did, and I wasn't going to go against medicine. She kept saying, no, you didn't. And I kept saying, yes, I did. And we went back and forth like 10 times. And then she said, okay, well, I'm going to time you, but I need you to read that page, and I need you to read it out loud. And uh, that's when she found out that I couldn't read. Because once she called me out like that, I just sat back in the, in the seat and I just got real, real quiet. Like I had went into a shell. And then I just became real frustrated. I was like, oh, man, they just found me out. And then I was always scared that they were going to send me away. Because that's what I was always threatened with in foster care. Boy, if you act out, 
you're going to be sent away. And I knew what the foster home looked like down the street because the foster home down the street was worse off than ours. Mm. And I just always think they're going to send me down here and I don't want to go down there. So I better be good. I better not do nothing. And uh, I went inside this year. That was my biggest fear that they were going to send me away. And, uh, but they never did. They stuck it out with me. But I became real resentful towards mom and dad because once they found out that I couldn't read, they stepped me back a grade. And I was okay with being stepped back a grade. That was nothing. School was nothing because I really didn't care about it. But it was the fact that before school, I had to go to school at 6.30 for uh, early tutoring. So that meant I had to get up extra early. So I had to go to school from 6.30. I had to get up at 6.30 to go to school. I had to be to school at from 7 to 8 for extra tutoring. And then I had to go to school all day. And then when I was done with school, I had to go to Dr. Todd's, an extra tutor, for another three hours. So I was really thankful for that. I should be so... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It's like, what the hell am I, I, do I got to do this for? You know, I said, I don't need this. I don't want this. Why, am I, why do I have to do this? Everybody else gets to go home. They get to go have fun. And I'm the only one. I remember... Uh, that negative self-talk that I had for so long. Every time I would have to walk to Dr. Thomas, I'd, I'd be so mad. And I'd be fussing and, 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 and I'd be, I'd just be frustrated. I'd be thinking. You uh, know, it was crazy, but it, it was just, and I started to develop these resentments towards mom and dad about that they're, they're making me do this and I don't want to do this. And then it started to be a challenge. Now here they are challenging me when in actuality they really wanted me to be better. But I couldn't see that. All I seen them doing was messing my life up, causing me to have more trouble, more heartache, more pain. And, I, and in my mind, I didn't need this stuff. I don't need this. I can get whatever I want. And uh, because to me at that time, stealing it was natural. It was normalized. It was okay for me to steal it. I was justified. I justified it like everybody was against me. The world was against me. And, and I had the right to take what I wanted, you know? I didn't have a mother. I didn't have a father. You know what I'm saying? I went through foster care. I said, y'all stick me with these parents. And I said, they can send me away at any time. You know what I'm saying? And I used to tell myself, it's okay for me to get mine. And, and I'm going to get it the best way I can. I've been taking care of myself all these years. I'm going to continue to take care of myself. And I had that mentality. And, and I carried that mentality with me throughout life. And it was, it was, it was, it was, it shaped a lot. Man, my beliefs were irrational and crazy. But the phone is going to take off. You want me to call back? Please. An inmate at a California State Prison, Solano, Vacaville, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tel Link. Okay. Yeah, it's good, actually. It's good. I said it's good, really just enjoying a, uh, listening to a black man, somebody who experienced so much trauma. Um, but not just that, it's also like an enlightened perspective. That's one of the things uh, that makes counseling with children very difficult. Um, even if they've been through a traumatic experience, it's very difficult for them to express that in an articulate manner because it takes insight to actually kind of search and, and, self, and, and search self to see what it is I've been through and how do I... Um, how do not not just how are my emotions experiencing that, but what do I think about that uh, cognitively? How am I processing that emotional experience? Yeah. Mm. Okay, sir. Can we talk about how I'm processing it? 
Well, no, not necessarily. We want you just to keep on telling your story. Okay. Uh, really, um, and really about the emotional experience too, like, um, like, uh, the, the emotions of anger and aggression were, uh, obviously frequent in your childhood experience, but did you ever, um, when you felt sad, if you will, did you ever cry or did you ever run to tell somebody else? Like, was that ever a, um, coping mechanism, if you will? Crying, it was really, it used to be the last shot of anger. And, uh, I said that because I got into a lot of fights in, in, in elementary school all the way until junior high school. And, uh, that's why I said to resentment towards mom and dad, they built up. And, and, and I see how wrong I was then, but it was, it was just me and, and it was my thoughts and my beliefs. And, and, and because I remember I used to get so mad and, and, and uh, Jamila and Camila. And, uh, because I would have to be at home and I would be working. And mom and their mom would take them and go shopping. And I never thought nothing about it back then. And I used to be like, man, I said, she's always taking them shopping and she'll never take me shopping. And what was crazy was I had resentment and I had anger built up. And it was even resentment and anger built up towards Jamila and Camila. But the thing about it was is when I look back now, it was like, okay, I understand why she didn't take me shopping. She didn't take me shopping because here it was. I had gotten to three fights in school and I didn't have the principal. I didn't have her come down and, and, and the principal had to talk to her and tell her that they didn't swat at me in school because I, I was acting out and I got in trouble. And then here it was, I'm coming home and I get put on punishment. And then I didn't look at the fact that here it is, I'm acting up and I shouldn't be rewarded for acting up. But I couldn't see that part of it. All I seen was them going shopping and me not going shopping. Mm -hmm. And it used to make me so mad. And I used to go back to school and I used to get into more fights. I constantly got into fights in school to let my anger out. And it was, uh, it was, it was crazy because they made the dessert, uh, what was her name? I can't remember the principal's name, but she made me a special paddle. Mm. It was a little paddle because I was the kid that got swatted in school the most. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and going into junior high school, she was my junior high school teacher. And oh man, but when they took that away, when they took swatting away, I was so happy because I couldn't get whooped in school no more. But it was just, it was just that. And, uh, growing up into my teenage years, it was, when I first started drinking, it was uh, it was actually Jamila. Jamila was the one, because mom and them had a bar. They had a bar behind, uh, down in the den. They had alcohol in the back of the bar, back of the, uh, back of the bar, back of the, uh, back of the den. There was a bar back there. And she, she said, come here, come here. And I came, because I guess she had always seen mom. That was the first time I actually drank alcohol. And I said, wow. But that alcohol just, it just did something to me. It, it just made me feel rejuvenated. It made me feel like I could just express myself and I could get things off my chest. And uh, that was really crazy. And then uh, I, ever since then, I started drinking. I was like, how old was I then? I think I was like 16 years old. Mm -hmm. I was 16, so that means me had to be like 13. What'd you say? No, just listen. Oh, yeah. Jamila was a leader at a young age, wasn't she? <laughs> She'll deny it. <laughs> and, and, and I never knew that alcohol could just make me get rid of me or, or, or lose focus of them. And uh, 
once she introduced me to alcohol, everything started to calm down for me. And it was like I didn't get into so many fights. I mean, I still got in trouble, but it was like the fighting, I didn't have This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Yeah, to just prove myself and uh but I mean I still got in the fights and I still acted out, but I just didn't have to do it as much. And uh but school was just moving too slow. It was just moving too slow and I was used to moving so fast. And what's crazy was it was when I signed up to go to Monsac, I ended up manipulating the system and I ended up getting financial aid. And I don't even know if mom and dad know about this. But I went to Mount Sac. I signed up for financial aid. And when I signed up for financial aid... You have 60 seconds remaining. Yeah, they ended up giving me $2,000. And they just gave it to me. <laughs> and I was like, y'all giving me this? And they were like, yeah. Well, hold on, let me call you back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people had that experience. Like, mine? <laughs> Yeah, yuck, from nothing. Nigga, that's the one. <laughs> Man, I don't know how much he's gonna be able to call back, but I hope he can keep calling back. Like, he ain't even talked about going to prison yet. <laughs> hey, Dad. The California State Prison, Solano, Vacaville, California. This call and global tail link. Monte. Yeah. All right. So you got two thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for going to school, and so I had no, no, no idea how to budget money or or nothing like that. And, and I spent money foolishly. So when they gave me the two thousand dollars, I instantly picked up a key and we went and cashed the check. And when we went and cashed the check, and I had no value for money to me. Money brought amenities. It brought tears. It got weed for me. And uh, so me and Kitty went to cash the check. And when we cashed the check, he was like, wow, man, how did you do that? So I'm telling him, look, man, I know how to fill out the paperwork. We can go hook it up for you. And then, uh, but the thing about it, we never got around to it. I ended up getting that $2,000. I never went back to school. I probably went to school like one more time. And then I was like, okay, this is just not for me. And I got out of school. We went and spent the money, and once that money was gone, I was like, man, now what are we going to do? Now what are we going to do? And that's when I said, okay, we had did this robbery with Johnny. We had did a robbery with Johnny, and uh, we ended up getting away. But mom and dad, in that process of that robbery, the officer knew that we were involved in this robbery. The officer knew, but he couldn't pinpoint it. And I had already had a dislike for authority figures. And when we got done with that robbery, we went to Gary's house. And uh, Gary was one of my high school, one of my friends. And uh, we both worked at McDonald's. And uh, I went to his house. And while we was at Gary's house, the police came and surrounded that house. Mm -hmm. And they drew their gun down. They had the house surrounded. And they made us all come out of that house one by one. By this time, somebody from the neighborhood knew mom and dad. They called mom and dad, and mom and dad came over there. The police brought us all out that house and put us down in the middle of the street. And when they put us down in the middle of the street, I didn't have nothing on me. And because I didn't have nothing on me, they was like, okay, you guys are the ones that did that robbery. And I kept telling them, we ain't getting no robbery. And I was in denial. I kept denying it. And he didn't have no money. He didn't have no guns. He didn't have nothing. 
to connect us to this robbery. So I knew he didn't have it. And mom and dad was there, but I didn't care about mom and dad being there. This officer was accusing me of something, and in my mind, I wasn't guilty because you couldn't prove it. So I'm telling him, you got the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And me and this officer is physically having an argument in the middle of the street in front of Gary's family, in front of mom and dad. And I'm telling him, you ain't got enough to know me. You always messing with me. And I'm basically belittling him. And uh, he's telling me that he knows who I am. And he said, he's going to get me. And he said, if I'm not careful, the time is going to come and he's going to get me. And then I'm telling him, you ain't going to get nothing. And, and I'm being very disrespectful because I'm mad at him for doing what he's doing. But the truth was, all he was doing was his job. And mom and dad, he pulled them to the side. And he told me, he asked them if they were their son. And they said yes, and they walked to the side. And this is what scared mom and dad. Because he told mom and dad that, I know that's your son. We know where he lives. We know the color of his car. We know exactly what it is because I had that Ford Escort. And it was it was different. It, it stuck out because it had the five-star chrome rims. It had the chrome fender trim. He said, we know that car anywhere it is in this town. And he said, we're going to get your son. So you better talk some sense to him. And whatever he said to mom and dad, he scared them. And that's when they sent me to Las Vegas. They said, okay, you have to get out of here. Because they were scared that this officer was going to get me. And they sent me to Las Vegas. uh, It's funny you say that because I remember that officer like I was in the seventh grade um, and being like, can we come in? It was just me. Like, how old are you in the seventh grade? Twelve? And like, I let him in the house. (laughs) I I don't know nothing. (laughs) But how out of line he really was for that. (laughs) He knew, he probably knew I was coming home from school. I was going to be there by myself for a little bit before everyone came home. That officer met, and I remember dad had like some bullets um, from his guns, and he was like picking up the bullets and was like collecting them. And I was like, shit, I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead. Like, I'm this innocent kid who's like, my family ain't doing nothing. That's funny, though. I remember that officer. Yeah, because you didn't know. You didn't know that it was me. I was the one. Mom and dad knew, but it was like, what could they do? It's like I'm their son, and they're trying to talk to me. They're trying to get this help from me, and they're trying to show me. Dad, one of my greatest experiences is when dad took me. He said, look, man, the second time I ran away from home, he took me, and he said, look. And, and this was crazy, because... I ran away from home, and Dad, Mom and Dad seen me coming in that van, in that blue and white van. And uh, they picked me up, they said, boy, get your butt in this van. And I got in the van, and uh, I sat in the back seat. And Dad was in the driver's seat, Mom was in the passenger seat. And Dad starts to take off his ring, and he starts to give him to Mom. And then he starts to take off his necklaces. <laughs> this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And in my mind, I had just ran away from home. I was gone for like a week. And I said, uh-oh, I got to get in a fight with Dan. I said, Dan, about to fight. Because when you take your rings and your jewelry off, this is what, what my thinking was like. I, I, was, I had a simple mind. I wasn't educated. I didn't do nothing but physically for myself. Spiritually, mentally, I did nothing to evolve. I was still that young, immature kid, and I didn't know no better. Well, I knew better, but I didn't choose to do better. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it was, in my mind, I'm thinking me and dad is going to fight. And so dad tells me when we drop mom off at the house, he tells me to get in the front seat. And when I get in the front seat, 
Man, if, if Dad would have just left me alone, I would have been able to do it when I was supposed to. I would have got away. But I ended up trying to do it later on. In <laughs> that was such a fun memory, by the way. <laughs> like, in my last yeah. time being with you in the free world. So, um... Yeah. Right. yeah. I'm, I'm sorry Dad ruined your robbery. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> so, but I think we can all appreciate you would have gotten Let's call Angela Telephone Anyway No but that's what That's what sticks out to me That memory with dad telling me that Is I cherish that today Because I understand the help that he was trying to give me Yeah I was just a knucklehead. I was hard-headed and set in my ways. And here it was, I was 16. I thought I knew more than this grown man who was hard with that. Dad was like 36 and I, I'm telling myself I know more than this man and I'm only 16. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it just knows there was so much more than that. Right. But you were, you were 21 when you got locked up? Or 20? I was 21 years up. Yeah. I was 21. I was 20 for six months. And how old are you now? Right now, I'm 45. I'm about to be 46 next month. So more than half of your life. I've been locked up longer than I've been on the street. Yeah. yeah. So it's been a long time. And, uh, and, and it only makes it... And I've only been here this long because... A lot of the irrational behavior that I had on the streets and a lot of the beliefs that I had and a lot of the low self-esteem that I had, I hadn't done no self-work. I hadn't done no self-development. That same immature child, that same child that didn't know nothing, didn't know his butt from a hole in the ground, came to prison. And I thought I had to be something that I wasn't. And I involved myself into this lifestyle very deeply with the alcohol making, the drug making, the cell phone usage, the fighting, the fighting, man. And, and, and it, was, it, was, it was a constant battle. It was a constant battle. And it wasn't until I actually started to, it was you, really. <laughs> the time when you asked me, you said, uh, when I called you on a cell phone, it was you that said, when are you going to start showing the family that you care about us? And in my mind, I thought you were tripping. I was like, oh, Camila tripping. She don't know what she's talking about. She don't know what I care about her. I said, every time I get money, I'm buying things, I'm sending things home, I'm sending them cars. And to me, that was me showing that I care. And I went to one of my partners. It was a partner named Ray. And I told Ray, I said, yeah, look, my sister tripping. I said, guess what she said? She's talking about when am I going to start showing the family that I care about them. And Ray looked at me, and he said, boy, you need to look into that. And um, You have 60 seconds remaining. I forgot who asked. Somebody asked, though. Yeah, so uh, he, he told me that I need to look into it. And I told him, I said, oh, you tripping. I said, you just taking that side. You don't know. Because in my mind, was said that you was the one tripping, and I was all right. Mm -hmm. But then it was Stuart. I, I, I talked to Stuart, and Stuart helped me see Stuart. was like, you need to really look into that and evaluate it. Stuart ended up taking me to 68. And, uh... I ended up going back to Ray and Ray said, Monte, uh, Monte, can you, I yeah. know you got to give somebody the phone. Can you call back? I'm going to call back right now. Okay. Okay.
beautiful. <laughs> no, it's very good. Yeah. Oh, I was so mad at him at that time. I was mad. This is Global Tailwind. You have a prepaid call from Archer. An inmate at the California State Prison, Solano, Vacaville, California. Our number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Yeah, hello. Mm -hmm. So they had told you to look into it? Yeah, nah, they was telling me to look into it, but I thought they were tripping too. And then uh, I started going to CGA. And I started talking to uh, Nashon, his name is Nashon Stewart. And Nashon Stewart really sat down with me and he started to uh, ask me questions. And that's what they're teaching me now, motivational interviewing, because he had went through this program that I'm in right now and uh, he had graduated from it. So he started asking me open-ended questions and uh, I started answering them. And he asked me, he said, what did you, he asked me, what did I think you meant by that? And in my mind, you were still tripping. But he said, no, think about it. He said, what do they want? And then he said, I, I told him, I said, well, truthfully, they want me to come home. And he asked, am I doing the things necessary to get there? And then we made out a list, and, and he wrote a line down the middle, and he said, okay, what are you doing towards working towards going home? And I said, okay, I go to groups, and groups was the only thing that I was doing at that time. And so we put groups on one side, and then on the other side, we put, okay, things I'm involved in that's keeping me from going home. And everything that I was involved in, from smoking weed, to selling weed, to drinking alcohol, to selling alcohol, to manufacturing alcohol, to uh, uh, selling cell phones, collecting cell phones, uh, from the manipulation, from the fighting, from just all of these things that I was still involved in, from loan sharking, uh, 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 and when I say loan sharking, I mean giving people money two for one, and uh, I give you fifty dollars, you gonna give me a hundred back, and uh, just enforcing just negativity. And I started putting all these things down because all of these things were things that could possibly lead me to a one fifteen that was gonna keep me in trouble. And I looked at it and I was like, wow. And I said, yeah. And, and, and this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. At that moment, I understood that. You wanted me to come home, mm -hmm. and you were asking me, when was I going to start giving up all of this foolishness? When was I going to give up the cell phones? When was I going to give up the hustling? When was I going to give up these things to give myself an opportunity? And that's what I started to see more clearly. And I told Stuart, I said, okay, I said, changes have to be made. And it wasn't easy, because there was so much that I was involved in, and I wasn't just on the surface of it. I was deeply entrenched, because... My personality, I've, I've always been a trusting person, and I've always been an honest person, because my whole thing was I wanted to keep things straight because I wanted you to keep things straight with me. And people just trusted me. They would put things in my hand because I knew if I brought them back what they wanted, then I would always get what they had every time they had it. So whether it was a gram of dope, two grams of dope, they're going to come bring it to me because whatever they tell me they want, I'm going to go get their money. And then whatever's left on top, I'm going to be able to keep for myself. There was always some left for me. And it was like I was the guinea pig. And I didn't mind being a guinea pig because I had that power and that control. I was the man. I was the people that, I was the one that people looked up to. They looked up to, they admired, and they hated. 
they hate it. I love the haters. I said, haters, you won't. I don't give a damn. You know what I'm saying? But, 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 it, but it was the haters that always bring you down. And it was just like, uh, it was crazy. I was consumed in this lifestyle. And it meant giving all of that up. Giving all that up and going just to regular old me. And the truth of the matter was, I wasn't comfortable with regular old me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to accept me. I didn't like who I was. And for my whole life, I never liked who I was. I always wished that I was somebody else. Every time growing up, every time something went wrong, I always wished that I was somebody else. Or if I was somebody else, if I was Sidney, or if I was Mark, or if I was Lynch, my life would be different. I would be different. I would be a better person. And, and I just hated who I was. So that meant accepting who I was. And I wasn't ready to do that. And, 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 and that was a task. That was a task in itself because that meant that I had to admit everything that happened to me as a child. That I had to admit that I was wrong about so many things that I had always told myself that I was right. I'm always right. I'm the one and everybody else is wrong. And it just meant that I had to do a lot of uh, uh, intros Intro, intro, introverted searching. Mm -hmm. And I had to start taking an inventory. And I had to start understanding me and why I was acting this way. What was I missing? What was I missing? But the thing about it was, and what helped me, is that I was willing. Because I realized that I wasn't showing you guys that I cared. I realized that all these years I had been hurtful. Not just to myself, but to you guys that sacrificed to come and see me, to put money on my books, to take care of me. And I wasn't doing nothing for you guys. And I said, okay, if I can't do nothing, then at least I can do this. And I swear to God, it was, and I almost quit a gang of time because I was like, oh, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that I tried to do was stop cursing. I told myself, okay, let me take little steps. Because at first I was trying to do it all at once. I was like, okay, when I wake up tomorrow, I'm be a changed person. And that's just not reality. Yeah. You can't wake up one day and just be a changed person. But that's what I was telling myself. And that stuff wasn't working. And I was like, okay, this ain't working, so I can't change. Something is wrong with me. It's always going to be something wrong with me. So let me just accept who I am and what I'm doing. And that's when Stuart and them were very patient with me. And they were like, no, no, look, Monte, it's a process. Pick something and stop doing it. And he said, pick something. And that's when I said, okay, cursing. I'm always cursing. Let me stop cursing. And I said, and, and that was a hard task. Because every <laughs> other word that came out of my mouth was a cuss word. Yeah. And that was a hard task. And, and, and I told myself, I said, look, I want to change. And... I slowly but surely stopped cursing. And I was like, wow, I can really do this because I started to monitor myself. I started to understand why was I cursing. And it was because it was easy for me to express myself and it was easy for me to express myself through anger. And the more I cursed, it made it seem like the more madder I was or the more it stuck. And I said, look, I don't want to be that way no more. I don't want to be hurtful. So I, I, I ended up taking steps and I stopped. And once I stopped doing that, I said, okay, I can do this. And I started to get involved in more groups. I started to go to AA. I started to go to NA. And, and this time, I wasn't just going just to be going. Because before, I was the one that used to sneak alcohol into AA so that we could drink it. But mm -hmm. now I started to go on with a purpose. Like, let me work this program and see if this program works. Because I always hear people talking. And for a long time, I believe, are oh, they full of it? They ain't, they ain't sober. 
they trying to pull one over our heads and, and, and the thing about it is what are they smoking? They smoking something because can't nobody be this happy. And uh but the truth of the matter was they were actually clean and sober. And I remember this one white lady and it was in, in the very beginning of my entering the program, this one white lady came up to me because I was a newcomer and she said, when we were getting ready to get down with our conversation, she said, I love you. And I, I looked at her real funny and I didn't know what to say. I just said, okay, and I walked away. But when I went back to my apartment, I said, man, that white, old white lady over there, that lady crazy. <laughs> and he said, what are you talking about? I said, that woman talking about she loved me and she don't even know me. I said, that woman is really crazy. And he looked at me, but he didn't say nothing. I just remember the look. And I never forgot that look that he gave me. And then as I stayed in AA, and I started to become more of service, and I started to do things that were necessary, I started to be a sponsor. I started to sponsor people. I started to be in a coffee man. I started to be the chairman of the meeting. I started to take pride in this. I started to be pleased with this. I started to understand what that lady meant. That lady meant that she loved me. Even though I didn't know how to love myself, she mm -hmm. was going to love me. And that she cared if I can regain my sobriety, that it meant something to her. And that's all that matters. And me thinking she was the fool, I was the one that was actually the fool. Oh, man. But yeah, it was, it, it, it was a process. And uh, I, I slowly but surely, and, and the biggest problem was me cutting out people that I considered my homies. That was so hard to do. Sure. Because here it is, I had been locked up in, in prison for 18 years. I've been locked up 24 years. I've been clean and sober for 14 years. I had been locked up because I've been clean and sober now for 10 years. For next year, it'll be 10 years. I've been clean and sober nine years. But I had built relationships with these individuals behind these walls. And when I say relationships, I mean when it came time to get into it with these Mexicans, or when it came time to get into it with these white boys, or when it came time to get into it with other blacks that owed us money or whatever the case may be, they were right there with me. You know what I'm saying? And it was like, okay, they had my back. If one fight, we all fight. And that's just the way it was. And if we need to get this food, we're going to get this food. And that's just the way it was. They were with me. And then for me to all of a sudden say that I got to let these people go, it was like I had to, I always believed that I owed them. I owed them because they protected me. They helped me in my time of need. That's, that's how I looked at it. And, and they had my back. How can you tell me that I got to leave? This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Yeah, I was like, how could you tell me I got to leave these people alone when these are the people that had my back behind these walls? These are the people that showed that they cared about me. And then I had to come to the realization that the truth of the matter was they didn't really care about me. They cared about the amenities that I was able to get, that I was the one buying the drink, that I was the one buying the uh, weed, that I was the one that had the cell phone, that I was the one that was getting the food and making the spread so that we can eat. These mm -hmm. are the things that they cared about. As long as I was doing that, then they was okay with being your forces with me. I was getting them high to escape reality. I was making, allowing them to feel better. And that's what it was. And, and I had to start to realize it, that they're messed up, they're in their addiction, just like I'm in my addiction. And if I'm trying to get better, then if they're willing to stay in that swamp and allow themselves to continue to sink, then I had to, I, I couldn't allow myself to continue in that lifestyle and be with them. And I had to tell myself that, if they're not helping me, then they're a hindrance. And no matter how I feel about it, 
moving forward. This is the way I want my life to be. I have a plan and I have a goal. And my objective is to get home. And if they're not conducive to that, if they can't help me in any way with that, then I have to sever ties. And that's what I had to start doing. And it wasn't easy. And, and, and I felt foolish at first. And it was like I was trying to pull away, but I didn't want to say nothing to them because I didn't want to hurt their feelings. So it was like I wasn't going to kiss it with them. I wasn't going to hang out with them. I was starting to, uh, uh, trying to avoid them or going the long way or going to the other side of the yard to hang out. And then all of a sudden one day I just had to tell them I had to be open and honest. Look, this is not the lifestyle that I want to lead anymore. This is what I have planned. This is what I'm moving, working towards. And the truth of the matter is, you guys aren't helping. So I have to sever this relationship. And it's not that I don't care about you. Or it's not that I don't still have love for you. It's just that you guys are doing things that are going to jeopardize what I'm working towards. And when you guys don't want to do these things, and you want to get recovery, or you want to move forward, then I'm the one to come talk to. Come see me, and I will help you in this struggle. Because it's, it's not easy. It's hard. And we have to make hard choices. But I told him, I said, you're never lost in my eyes. I said, you're just a person that's still in that addiction. And you can't get yourself out right now. And I said, the only person that can get you out is you. And when you're ready, I'll be willing to help you. The same way Ray was willing to help me, the mm -hmm. same way Nation Stewart was willing to help me. And I always left that door open because every life matters now. Every human life matters. And for a long time, that just wasn't the case. Life meant nothing to me. Life meant nothing to me because my life didn't matter. And that's just the raw reality of it. And that's why it was so easy for me to do a lot of the stuff that I did because I just didn't care about life. Nobody meant nothing to me. It was about what I wanted, what I needed, and how I was going to get it. And I didn't mind pointing a pistol at somebody and taking what they had because they meant nothing to me. Mm -hmm. And that had to change. And that's what changed in me. I stopped being desensitized because for many, many years behind these walls, we were desensitized. I was desensitized. And I can say that because you have to be desensitized if you can watch somebody or participate in jumping somebody, beating somebody up to the point where they have to be hospitalized, or watching somebody get stabbed up and sitting on the yard thinking, damn, they have messed off. You have 60 seconds remaining. You know, not thinking. How did I hurt this person or is that person hurt? The first thing we're thinking of that I was thinking was they had messed off canteen. Now I can't go to the store. Or they had messed off showers. Now I got to go in here and bird bath. Those were my first thoughts. So that's how desensitized I was towards human life. Yeah. Do you need me to call back? Yes. <laughs> All right. Let me call back. You got uh, nail clippers? And then, uh, let me look for him. I got a file. What? File. But I got to get it out of the car. No. Oh, I'm I'm sure you have. Oh, he's just the best shit. I ain't attitude towards authority that I had on the streets. I carried with me into prison life. I brought him in here and I cussed officers out. I called them bad names. And uh, this one officer, I was, and, and 
they had made me so mad. And, and I said this to this officer as an example, I'm gonna tell you. We were coming back from work one time, and this officer, he really didn't like inmates. And this is me still being subjected, because I don't know if he liked inmates or not, but his attitude showed that he didn't. And uh, they was leaving us, and our three officers that we had bringing us back from work were rookies. So he was a senior officer, and it was like he had control. So he was trying to show off to me in front of his boys and trying to control the situation, like he could just make the inmates wait. So I went inside to him, didn't nobody else want to say nothing, so I was getting frustrated because it was already 7.30, and I wanted to go shower, and I had, I had things to do. And what I had to do was more important than him allowing us to wait, and that's how I looked at it. So I felt I had to go say something, so I went to say something to him. And when I went to say something to him, I said, look, man, you need to be doing your job. We're trying to get back. We didn't been at work for seven hours. This is when I worked in the kitchen. And I mean, we really worked because we had to make the food and, and wash the pots and pans. So I was tired. And uh, I'm telling him, you need to process it because we got things to do, man. We need to go. And he told me to go. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And the first time he told me to go back there and wait, I listened. I went back there and waited. And then some more time went by. And, and But the thing about it was in the process of me going back there and waiting, I had all types of thoughts going through my mind. Like, this fool didn't think he punked me or something. What is everybody thinking? Everybody looking at me like I'm soft or I'm weak. And it was just my own thoughts, my own insecurities. It wasn't nobody thinking nothing, but it was me inside my mind telling myself, I need to go put this dude in this place. He got us sitting back here for no reason. So I went back to the officer. It was like a few minutes that went by. And I said, look, man, I don't know what y'all got us waiting for, but y'all need to process us too. I said, stop playing. Well, I don't know what y'all got going on, but you need to do something. And uh, he said, all oh, y'all PC inmates, all oh, y'all thinking uh, uh, y'all can just come in here and talk any kind of way, take your PC right back, back out there. And PC means protective custody. And it's like, when you roll it up, you become a PC inmate. And I told him, I said, look, partner, you need to go check my seat, find nothing PC about me. I said, what you need to be worried about is a bag of balls you got waiting on that you need to go home and suck on. And I said, you need to process that through. And that was my mentality towards officers. The same disrespect that I had on the streets was the same disrespect that I carried in here. And that had to change because, and it wasn't going to change until I realized where does this hatred come from? And that's the reason why I told you about what happened when I was three years old about this officer pulling on me. Because mm -hmm. that moment was significant. Because that's the moment when I started to develop these beliefs about officers that they're no good, that they're trying to keep me away from my mother. And none of the good that I've seen officers do over the years mattered. All the negativity that I've seen them do, are they always trying to get us, they always messing with us, officers always pulling me over. Never once did I say they're just doing their job, or here it is, I'm causing trouble, so I'm making them do their job. I always looked at it like they were always the problem, and that carried over into here. And the reason why I say that is because at that time in prison, it was very dangerous for me to talk to an officer like that. It was two times where it came real close where something bad could have happened to me, because behind these walls, Anything can happen to you if an officer wants and they can say it's an accident or he ends up hanging himself. Mm -hmm. And there's so many stories where you see officers staging fights or letting inmates out to go jump on another inmate. And a lot of that stuff 
back in the olden days is actually true. Yeah. Was that when you were in Corcoran? Because I know, like, Corcoran now is notorious. That's exactly when I was at Corcoran. Yeah, for them uh, no. gladiator fights where, like, the officers would let inmates kill each other. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And so no, that was no, the no, same time. Yes. You was talking shit to I'm it. sorry. You was talking mess to an officer like that in Corcoran, and you knew that was going on? So I had this belief that I was untouchable. I had this belief that I was, I was, I was on top of the world. That, that, that. It's just, and, and I hated officers. I hated officers, and it wasn't the first time. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was one other time that I talked to an officer. I was at Lancaster, and I was standing out of bounds. Now I was out of bounds, and the sergeant came. And in my mind, this is like when I first came in. It was like I was like 23 years old. And when I came, when the officer came, the sergeant came through, the sergeant was walking, and I was standing out of bounds talking to one of my partners behind the door. And I was out of bounds, and the sergeant looked at me, and he said, you need to back up. And I told the sergeant, no, you need to go around. But I'm the one that's out of bounds. I'm the one that's in the wrong. And he he's telling me that I need to move for him, and I'm looking at him like, you ain't nothing. I'm not going to move for you. Who the hell is you? But this is a sergeant, and this is how crazy my thinking was. I'm talking to this sergeant like this, and what's crazy is the sergeant ended up pushing on and went and went out outside. And when he went outside, 9 o'clock was lockup time. When 9 o'clock came, they paged me. They paged me to come across the yard, and I went to the program office. And when I went to the program office, there was like about 30 officers out there. And that same sergeant stood right there in the middle, and that sergeant said, this is how I roll. He said, say what you were saying then. And I looked at him, and I seen all of these officers. It was like 30 of them, and I was like, damn. And it was only me out there. I was scared to death. And I found myself, but see, I've always been quick with words. I've always been able to manipulate my way out of situations. I've always been a good manipulator. And I told him, I said, you know what? I was in the wrong. I didn't mean no harm. I apologized. And I found myself apologizing real fast and speaking real fast. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no disrespect towards you. You'll never have that problem out of me again. Because I'm looking at the situation. If I say anything foul to this officer, that they can get me. And that's crazy. And, and, and that situation right there helped me see a lot, but it still didn't change my view. It didn't change my view because even before then, when I was inside the county, I got smart with an officer. And when I got smart with an officer inside the county, the officer did something. And I told him, boy, you can't do that. That ain't the rules. I said, you need to go learn the rules. You need to go read the book and learn the rules. He said, how you going to tell me about the rules? I'm the officer. I make the rules. I said, you don't make no rules. You're just a guinea pig. You're a turnkey. You turn the keys when you're told. Turn the key and let me in. The officer took me around the, around the side. And these were big dudes. And when he took me around the side, it was three of them. It was three huge ones. And he stood me up, stood me up against the wall. And then he looked at me. And next thing I know, he slapped me across the face. And when he slapped me across the face, I looked at him. And in my mind, I was like, I can't get these dudes because there's three of them. 
And even then, that was in county jail, and that was the first time I ran into a wiki officer. Even then, that didn't teach me to change my attitude towards him. I still kept that same attitude because I didn't know how to change it. I believed that they were no good. And every time I had an encounter with them, that's just what I believed. I believed that officers are no good, and they're not here to help us. But the truth of the matter is, that was my own subjectivity. The truth of the matter was, they're not even like that. And as I've changed over the years and as I've grown and I've wised up, I see that a lot of them do care and a lot of them just have a job to do. And that's what they're doing. They're doing their job. I was the one that was causing all the harm and all the trouble because I was the one that was breaking the rules. I was the one involved in drugs. I was the one that was involved in all of these illegal activities behind these walls, causing people to overdose. Causing people to get into fights because they're drinking too much. Causing people to be belligerent towards officers because they're intoxicated too much. I was the one that caused a lot of that behavior. And I can see how dangerous I was on the streets and in prison. And, and, and I'm just lucky to still be alive where I don't have to be that way no more. And I've grown up and I've matured and I've worked on myself. And I've gained balance in my life mm -hmm. because balance was missing for many, many, many decades, years, two decades, three, no, many decades, because this started when I was like five years old, so decades, but I don't know, so everything is all right. Yeah, yeah, no, um, this is... Uh, This is really, um, really good. Um, man, it's <laughs> uh, really, really good. I never went into. I never went into women. Do you want me to go into women? We can go into women. Um, can you? I just have. No, all I have to do is pay for this. Um, how many? Can I give me? Don't get me wrong. All right, I'll give you 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure we don't stop our recording because that would be tragic. So um, give me 10 All minutes right. and then I'll call you. I mean, and then we'll answer, but we're waiting for you to call. All right, 10 minutes. All right, bye. All right, bye. No, this is good. <laughs> You said you were going to get into kind of some of your thoughts around how you treated women or your relationship with women. Yeah, yeah. And the and, growth uh, you've had in that. that yes. Yeah. And, and, oh, man, it was crazy because that's why I said, and, and there's this saying that we have, and it says all roads lead to home. And I'm starting to have understanding to what that means because it means that at an earlier age that we developed these we developed these beliefs. I developed these beliefs at an early age. And with an absentee mother and a mother that constantly was lying to me mm. and trying and, and, and getting my hopes up, I uh I built hatred towards her. Never thinking about her situation or never understanding that she was a 14 year old woman that got pregnant and I don't even, not even is a, a 14 year old a woman that's why that's why I corrected it mm -hmm. not a woman a teenager and uh 
uh, she she was a teenager. She had me at the age of fifteen, and not only that, she was addicted to PCP, and she was kicked out of the house. So after years of putting myself in her situation, trying to understand what was this woman going through, and that was again through the help of you and your letter of helping me see that this was my mother and this was the situation that she was in and have I ever given thought to how life was for her at that time and I had never once given thought to that never once your letter is what inspired me to look into that and I started to see that the possibility of her having a child and not only having a child at 15 but trying to raise me and keeping me from 15 to 18 because she kept me until I was 3 and the things that she had to do, the pain that she had to endure, and nine times out of ten there was a lot of prostitution involved. So I said that to say that that right there helped me change my perspective on a lot of things. Because for many, many years, I held hatred towards my mother. I hated her for constantly lying to me. I hated her for giving me up. And, and, and making me feel like I didn't matter. And the truth was, she didn't make me feel that way. I chose to feel that way. Mm. But I put that all on her. And that wasn't right of me. And that played into my relationships because I had big, huge trust issues as I got older. And it played in the relationship that I had with mom as well because for a long time, when I came to Pomona, I remember it was easy for me to call dad, dad. It was easy because dad meant nothing to me. I never had a father, nothing to compare that to. So calling him dad was nothing. And I remember he sat us down in the living room one time. It was me, you, and Jamila. And he said, okay. He said, I want to know what you guys call us, but let me speak first and, and, and just tell me. And he went to you guys first. He said, what did you call me? He said, I don't know if he went to you and Jamila first, but he went to one of you guys, and you guys both said dad. And then he came to me and he said, uh, what did you call me? And I said dad, because to me it meant nothing. And then he said, okay, well, what did you guys call her? And you and Jamila both said, we call her mom. And when he got to me, I was silent. And I couldn't say nothing. And I don't know how that affected mom at that time. And I'm sure she probably was hurt a little bit because she knew that I wasn't calling her mom when they had told me to call her mom. But in my mind, I knew that this woman wasn't my mom. And, and it just felt funny. It felt weird to call this woman my mom when she's not my mom. And I just couldn't do it. And dad told me, he said, you call her mom. And I said, okay. And I went along with it. And I started to say mom, but it just always felt funny to me. And, uh, and, and and that's what it was. And, and, and I wasn't trusting of women. And my mom had a big role in that, but it was my choice. And as I got older and as I got into relationships with women, it was like to me, women were inferior and men were superior. And it was like in relationships, I was extremely hurtful. I was extremely hurtful and I was controlling and I have justified women in a negative way. And when I say that, it was, they were sex objects. Me, I needed to get my needs met 
and it wasn't nothing about her needs. It wasn't, and, and everything was manipulation. It was me making them feel good to get what I wanted. And there was no trust in none of the relationships. None of the relationships, I never trusted women. And I say that because if they went somewhere, or they went somewhere that I didn't want them to go, I would be so mad. But I wouldn't let them know that I was mad. It was just, I would keep it suppressed. I would keep it held inside. And I would be like, how could she go there? And I would have these thoughts, these thoughts going through my mind. And I would be like, okay. But it was, it was something I had to do, and I had to understand where it came from. And once I understood where it came from, then I was able to do things about it. And, and that's why I said you were a big help, because understanding that, it wasn't my mom that had left me or abandoned me. She always wanted me. She was just in her addiction. She was in this addiction. And even though she did love me, in my mind, I figured she didn't love me. And all them years, I said, she don't love me. And then uh, constantly lying to me. But the truth of the matter was, that woman did love me. And she probably loved all of her kids. But it's the addiction had a control of her life. And it was so powerful. It was cunning and baffling. And she just couldn't overcome it. And I had to understand that so that I can understand that she did love me. And that helped change my attitude towards women. And once I was able to do that and able to understand that I had to change my attitude towards women, then I was able to start playing on an equal field with men and women. Nobody is better. Nobody is worse. We're all equal. We're all capable. We're all here to help one another in this process of life. And that's what helped me. And, and that's why I give you a credit to a lot of my growth. Because if it wouldn't have been for your letter, then I never would have listened. Well, I probably would have, but it would have took me much, much longer to come to that realization than the help that you gave me by asking me to look at it from her shoes, look at it from her situation. And that helped me tremendously. Yeah. And uh, today I am very respectful of women. And, and, and I no longer treat them as objects. And, and even officers in here, I talk to them constantly. And, and, and uh, I treat them fairly. I treat them fairly because I understand they have a job to do. And I no longer try to make it difficult for them. I try to work with them in the best way that I can. Or try to be as helpful as I can. And uh, that, means, that means I have to do things that are frowned upon like... One time this woman, she was carrying these boxes, and she ended up dropping the boxes. Now, in my olden days, I would have just walked by, because there was a lot of inmates that just kept walking. And I would have just walked by. But once she dropped these boxes and they scattered all over the place, I found myself actually sitting down there helping her pick these boxes back up. And that was big because that right there let me know that, okay, I do have compassion. I do have empathy. I can be loving towards another person, even though they're wearing a uniform, because I always look at that uniform as us versus them, and I had to stop that. And, uh, yeah, so that was big, and, uh, and, and, and it hasn't been, it was, it's just been doing the work. Once I was able to do the work and start to really learning about me and going inside of me to understand why I was behaving this way, then it was easy for me to start making changes in my life. And, uh, it wasn't easy because I had to admit that I was a liar. And that was the biggest thing, admitting that I was a liar. Because a lot of the lies that I told, I believed them. And I mean, from junior high school to lying that I had sex with many, many girls. And, and 
The crazy part about it is every girl I was with, I had sex with. And the truth of the matter was, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't have sex until real sex with a woman until it was actually with me and Shantae. And that's when Shaviante uh, was conceived. Mm -hmm. But all the years before then, I always claimed that I had had sex. And the truth of the matter was, I didn't. I didn't because I was on a tight leash and it just wasn't... I wasn't able to just run out and do that because mom and dad always, I was always on punishment or always been busy and I just never had them opportunities. But the minute that they gave me some room to where I can go out, that's when me and Shantae had our first our first relationship. The relationship before that was me and Lasagna. And uh, me and Lasagna never did nothing before then. We didn't. And uh, yeah, I was a liar. I was a liar and I was a manipulator. And I didn't know how to be truthful and I didn't know how to go back and correct my wrongs. I had to stick by it because I had to seem like I was bigger than what I was. And I had to have people like me. I needed them to like me. I needed you to like me more than I like myself. And I needed you to like me even if I didn't like you. And that's what's crazy. Because even if I didn't like you, I still needed you to like me. No matter how I felt about you. So I found myself going above and beyond to get you to like me, even though I don't even like you. And there's no need for us to have this relationship. But I needed this person to like me. And it's just crazy how that ran my life for so long. And, and I couldn't get out of that. I couldn't get out of it. But I had to understand how that came about. And I understand today. Yeah. Oh, man. But it's, uh, I hope that's helpful, you know. I don't know if there's anything else I can say. I mean, there's so much. Nah, you, you, I think that um, this is really powerful. Um, and I just feel like, I mean, you are a completely different person. And you know you're my brother, so I see you from a clouded yeah. lens. Um because you're my brother, so even listening to you say that, like, yeah, I know you was messed up towards women, but you're my brother. <laughs> you know, like, and, um, and it's true, it's true, it's true, and, and, and it's not true, it's, it's, the truth of the matter was, it was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I was one person at home, and I was another person in the streets. Yeah. In the streets, I was this vindictive, evil, manipulative person, this hateful person, and I never brought that home, I never brought that home because I always had to have that home image, like everything was alright, everything was okay with me, nothing is wrong, but nobody knew about the thoughts that were going through my head, the mm -hmm. mischievous acts that I was committing in the community. Nobody knew, I mean, they had their suspicions, and truthfully, mom and dad knew, because people were telling them, but they couldn't control me. I was uncontrollable. I was caught in this cycle, and I couldn't get myself out. I didn't know how to get myself out. This is what I relied on for my security. At an early age in life, I decided that it was me and me alone that had to keep me safe. And I've always had that mentality, and I did not know how to break it. I did not know how to be trusting of people. I did not know how to let people in. I thought that I had to take care of me. And when things got hard, I had to deal with it. When things got to the point where uh, uh, sacrifice... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. When sacrifices had to be made, I was the one that felt I had to go above and beyond and do it. And it's crazy because even when... Uh, 
and, and he's resting in peace now, Achilles, even when he was the one that was supposed to do a robbery, and he got scared. I told him there's nothing to worry about, and I went and did the robbery for him and gave him all the money. I said, that's how crazy I was. I was willing to sacrifice myself because I didn't want nothing to happen to nobody else. I was willing, I didn't care about the harm or the hurt that came to me because I didn't know how to care about me. And that's where it all originated from. I did not know how to care about me. I didn't see no worth in me. I didn't feel good about me. So me didn't matter. And that's where a big problem was. I had to come to the realization that I matter. I am somebody in this world, and I matter. I have a purpose. I can be good, and I was created for a reason. Mm. And I think that I was created to help others come to their realization. Yes. That's beautiful. That's good. <laughs> no, it's real good. I think that um, people going to feel this. No, they is. I think that, um, you know, most of us, probably people who are going to listen, they haven't spent 25, 24 years in prison, but people can relate to that. People can relate to um, what you're saying. The work that you have done on yourself is just phenomenal to me. Um, in a way that most of us, myself included, like, have not really, that I think I've done work on myself, but like to see someone like where the change is so tangible. Someone locked up too? Yeah. Like, like, now you're supposed to, you know, I think that we're supposed to figure this out when we get out, you know? Um, yeah. But I don't know. What do you no, think? I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't wait till I got out because if I waited till I got out, it would have been too late because yeah. I would have still been in here that same mind state and I would have still been getting 115 after 115. I, over the years, I've accumulated 15, 115. We don't even and know what that is. What is that? That's getting in trouble. <laughs> getting in trouble. Right up. And, and every time you get in trouble, they write you up. And they wrote me up 33 times mm -hmm. for fighting, alcohol usage, uh, manufacturing, distribution, cell phone usage, war fights, uh, disobeying a direct order, disrespectful to authority, uh, being out of bounds, uh, being in somebody else's cell when I ain't supposed to be, getting high, you name it, I've gotten in trouble for refusing to work, telling them I'm not doing nothing, you do this, being intoxicated at work. I mean, you name it, I've done it behind these walls because I was very disrespectful to authority and I thought that rules did not apply to me. I was above and beyond the law and I was above and beyond rules. They did not apply to me because I felt I was entitled to do whatever I wanted to do. And that just is not reality. That is a dangerous mentality for anyone who thinks like that. So I understand how dangerous I was, and I understand why mom and dad had to put me out of the house when they did, because their objective was to keep you guys safe. Yeah. Oh, man. <clears throat> no, I just think the, um, the work is impressive, too. Um, you know, appreciating it from like a humanistic standpoint and obviously starting with attachment and not really having like a secure attachment and then trying to uh, you know, develop a group, you know, if we will, according to man. This call and or telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
and trying to like uh not necessarily develop a group but be accepted by a group and uh when it's time to be accepted by a group around the ages of four or five we generally go to the people who have you know those common experiences and we have that like that relatability to uh whether that be a group of people who are in the math and they can't wait to do the spelling bee or whether that be a group of people who are in a rush to skip school and can't wait to like sexually explore each other because of the commonality of the experience like when when we try to get into a group like that, after you are accepted by the group, next come the achievement. So like maybe when I go on my first robbery, I'm highly uncomfortable. But now that I belong to this group, it's time for me to get esteem within the group. It's time to, for me to be identified within the group as a somebody. So now I'm I'm less uh, I'm I'm less anxious about carrying the gun. I'm less anxious anxious about making the plan myself. I'm le- I'm less anxious about going on a mission myself now because within the group I have I, I I am gaining esteem. I am gaining like an identity within the group. And one of the things I think about men, and when I say men, I really mean men as in mankind, is uh, we kind of need isolation. And when I say isolation, I really mean like separation from my uh, place of origin, whether that be off to college, prison, boarding school. I think that great men like take those 40 days and 40 nights away from the group. Like, however long we need to kind of redefine what it means to exist as ourselves. Um, Generally, we kind of like accept the path that society has laid for us, accept the path of our experience and the group that we have belonged to. But it takes have sixty seconds remaining. But it takes some time away from that group for us to like kinda of evaluate the behavior and the beliefs of the group. Like do I really believe in uh addressing women like this? Do I really believe in fighting like this? Um it probably took me to like Okay, let me stop. Mm-hmm. Let me stop you the phone the phone thing take off. Do you guys need me to call back? Yeah, call back? Yeah. And nobody probably talked to him about his story. That's the other thing that's like dope about this. Like mm-hmm. how often do you like people know that this may be a commonality, but it's a very uncommon story told. Yeah. This is Google Kelly. You had a prepaid call from an inmate at the California State Prison, Solano, Vacaville, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say thank you for using Global Tail Link. So, Alright, go on. Um, just really saying that the work is impressive. Um, most of us don't do this work. It's understandable because, again, like I say, I I believe it takes time apart from the group. The group in the social experience is so dominant that it almost takes a new social experience for you to kind of have to evaluate everything, um, especially for those of us who are like uh, cool kids or accepted. Um, I, I often use the analogy of uh, being a ninth grader who is not accepted by the group and having to uh, find out where to eat lunch in the cafeteria. Like, that is a highly uh, anxiety-ridden situation for them. But by the 10th and 11th grade, eating lunch alone so many times, they become independent thinkers. They, they kind of know how to move in the cafeteria in isolation. Um, but for those of us who are part of the cool kid group, 
Um, we don't really learn this skill, if you will, and we don't really learn this experience until we have been thrust into uh, a, a, a situation where we are not in the, the majority group, a situation where we are not the cool kid. And then where do we eat lunch? Um, that's why you find most of us cool kids who actually have a hard time eating anything or being in any social space without another. So we kind of pretend to be on our phones. Um, that's our anxiety speaking speaking out loud because we really never critically got with us. I mean, we never had to. One of the disadvantages of being a cool kid is group think. So you kind of go with whatever the group doing. If the group say we're going to skip school, even though I ain't with skipping school, I'm a part of the group, so I got to do it. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and that's what it is, though. It's, it's proving myself. And I always felt that I had to prove myself or get people to see that I'm just as tough or I'm just as bad or, or I'm just as bold, if not bolder. And, and, and that's just crazy how we can just put ourselves in jeopardy like that and, and bring so much hurt and pain to the people that actually do truly love us. And I never gave thought to that. I never gave thought to mom and dad or how I was affecting them or the many times, the times that I got caught stealing and how it affected her and how much pain I put her through because I remember the second time I got caught stealing in Broadway, mom had just bought me a, it was like $300, a $300 leather jacket. She just had bought it for me. And uh, I remember when they came to get me because I was still in clothes from Broadway. And I remember her, and she doesn't know that the, uh, the officers had brought me up and set me outside the door where they were inside the room talking. And I heard her talking to the security guy, and she was crying, and she was like, I don't know why he does this. He doesn't have to. I get him whatever he wants or whatever he needs. We buy it for him. We provide for him. I don't know why he does that. But she doesn't know that I did it because I was around my peers and I wanted my peers to like me. And they were still in. So I couldn't say, oh, no, I'm not going to be a part of that. I just wasn't strong enough to do that. I had to show, man, I could do this too. To be accepted. To be liked by them. To be wanted or evolved or a part of the group and to me if I didn't do it then it was sure that I was weak or that I didn't belong or they were going to outcast me and I couldn't allow that to happen so I always had to go above and beyond but I never once thought about the hurt that I was causing her even her crying that day it fell on deaf ears because it still didn't bother me still I moved forward with life not trying to change just trying to be slicker the next time yeah. how can I be slicker so that I don't get caught because I can't and, 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 and that's just the way it was that was reality of it so I understand exactly what you're saying and uh but it's mom and dad too and don't get me wrong it was them as well that, that helped me over the years because as I started to change and I started to evaluate myself, I started to see who are the people that's been in my life since day one. And from the moment I was adopted to even today, my mother takes care of me. My father takes care of me. And those are the two rock stones that I've had since the very beginning from family that I can say that actually taking this trip to come and see me was my mother, my father, 
and Camila. They came by themselves on this journey to come and spend time with me in prison. And that meant a lot. And I didn't see it back then for what it was, but today I understand what it is. And I understand who cares about me. And I understand who will be there when things get tough or when times get hard. I understand who's going to be there and who I can depend on and who has my back. And not only who, who, who has my back, but who can I help along the way. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just about me. It's about my part as well. Because there are things that I can bring to the table as well. And I understand today that it's about helping one another. When I almost died in here, and it was real close, the doctor told me, because my appendix had bursted inside of me, and they had to rush me to the outside hospital. And I didn't know how close I was to dying. The doctor had to tell me. But the minute that I called and I told mom that very weekend, it was mom, dad, Camila, and she brought me, I think it was... Chance and Michael, because I can only have five visitors, but the family was here for support. And that's what I started to understand. It. And once I started to really see that and start to understand that, it started to help me put life in perspective. It, I started to understand, and don't get me wrong, even though I was brought up in this family, everything that was done for me, I did not forget. All the sit-downs and the talkings to, I did not forget, and it did not fall on deaf ears. I listened. But I just didn't apply it back then. So everything that dad taught me, everything that mom showed me, is still a part of me. I just didn't utilize it back then. Mm -hmm. I utilize it today. And see, that is the big difference. And that's why I always tell mom and them the things that they said, the things that they've done, is not in vain. I am a better person. I am a stronger person. Not only because of what I went through and was able to withstand it and overcome it, but because they instilled in me the ability and the strength to move forward, even when times get hard, that I'm enough. And even though I didn't believe that I was enough, today I believe that I'm enough. And it's because of them and their struggle and their sacrifices. And when I call and say, Mom, I need money, she has no problem putting money on my books. When I say, Mom, I need a package, she has no problem sending me a package. Anytime I call and say I need something, they have sacrificed over and over and over to show me that I am still cared about. I am still important. I am still somebody. So that does not go unnoticed. And I can never repay them for the gratitude that they've showed me, for the things that they've done in my life. It was crazy because not once, not once have I sat face to face and told them thank you for adopting me. Not once have I done that. And I told myself, I said, next time they come and see me, I have to sit down, I have to thank this family for adopting me into their life. Because if they didn't, with the mentality and the attitude that I had at 10 years old, going and living inside of L.A. in that harsh environment, that gang-infested environment, I would have been dead. And there's no doubt in my mind that I would have been dead because I was just that crazy. I was insane. And I thought that I was above the law. And the truth of the matter was that if I kept going down that path, I was going to be dead. And they saved me from that. Even though I had to do 25 years in prison because I'm coming up on 25 years, it's better than being dead. And I still have opportunity. Yeah. There is still time for me in life to make something good of myself. And that is not going to go undone. And it's because of them. And I appreciate everything that they've done for me. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Yeah.
But I know what you mean, though. I know exactly what you mean, and, and, and it's true. I care more about outside and, and, and the outside influences. I care more about what the homies think. I care more about what these females think. I care more about what everybody else thinks. But what was important, my mother, my father, my sisters, my brothers, what they thought, they fell on deaf ears. And it's no longer like that today. Today, what they think is important to me. Outside entities, they're important if they're on the right path and they're trying to do what's right. But I no longer have to put myself in jeopardy to impress people. And that's what's changed about me. I no longer get my self-esteem and my self-worth from outside entities. I create my self-esteem. I create my self-worth. Nobody has to give it to me. I feel good about me. I feel good waking up in the morning. And for a long time, that just wasn't the case. I dreaded getting up in the morning. I hated life. But that's not the case today. Mm -hmm. Today, I matter. And I like who I am. And I appreciate you guys, though. And, uh, I don't know. I can't. I won't be able to call back because our program ends at 9 o'clock. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we just, um, and shoot, you know, all I want is just come home. Like I just, want, um, I just want uh, to have my brother. Uh, you know? Yeah, and the thing about it is, today I'm working towards it, and it's not just about me. It's about also helping other men become strong, so when they get home, they can sustain life in society. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's the reason why I'm in this program today, because I want to help men become stronger men. But not just stronger men, but responsible men. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Because it's sad to see all of these kids running around here without any goals, without any hope towards the future. And it's sad when you got 19, 20-year-olds that are just as lost as I was when I came in. And it's those are the ones that I gravitate toward. Those are the ones that I try to help before they get back home because a lot of them are short-timers. But I want them to see that there's something better. And I want them to understand that it's up to them to actually start implementing the changes that they need so that they can sustain life and society. Because if they don't, then it's sad to say, but I also tell them I will see you again because you will be back. And that's a harsh reality. And it's not that I'm trying to wish bad luck upon them or, 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 or bad karma, but I'm just telling them from reality. I've seen so many people go home and come right back because they didn't work on themselves. And I just want to give them a chance to try to better themselves because they have kids, they have mothers, they have fathers, they have sisters that they need to be out there gravitating towards instead of pushing them away for the homies. The homies this, the homies that. And I speak out against that every chance I get. Every chance I get. Because that's what's keeping us apart. It's that gangbanging mentality. Yeah. Oh man! But uh, yeah. So hopefully you guys have enough, and uh, I hope I was of help. And uh, no, this is good. Not then. I think. Huh? This no, is good. you were of help. <laughs> I can't. I can't wait to get feedback from this. Um, I, I, I mean, I can speak it, but I know you've already helped people. I mean, you know, yeah. even through this. Um, this is beyond, I think, that what we hope for. And I just really appreciate you. Um, yeah. I guess. Wait, wait, wait. Thank, thank you, and I hope it does help people because that's what the that's, that's what the motive is. The motive is to help people become better and stronger. 
and more responsible. And if it helps people, then I don't mind. And uh, if you guys ever have anything you want to ask me, I'm always an open book because I'm always willing to help in any way I can. Yeah, man. Oh, so, man. so when you uh, look, this is the thing. So we're gonna have you back on when you <laughs> when you out here. Uh huh. When are you uh, when are you hoping to uh, go up to see the parole board? Uh, well, I filed my paperwork in April. April the fourth, I can turn my paperwork in, and most likely I'll probably go to the board like in June or July. And, uh, well, we just want to encourage all of our listeners to send you all their positive energy, whatever mm-hmm. um, method you use, if it's prayer or meditation or just crystals, or <laughs> positive affirmations, because it's time. And you got work to you do. You have right? 60 seconds remaining. In these streets, you got work to do. And hell, you can help us. So. Yeah. <laughs> Sound like. No, it's good. But the phone is going to click off, so it was, it was a joy. I appreciate y'all. I love you guys. You guys take care and be safe, all right? All right. I you love too, you, Monte. I love you, too. I mean, it really it speaks to a lot of shit. I mean, it was a very dynamic story. I probably got a million things to say, not just one. Um, One of them is child culture. Um, child culture for those of us who are not really familiar with it is um, the beliefs, norms and behavior that um, children share Um, child culture uh, one of the elements of it is they do not let adults in they lie to adults to protect child culture Um, children are ostracized Um, teacher's pet uh, mother's boy children are ostracized if seen to value adults outside of child culture, to to give adults a more um, pronounced um, space and position in your life than than your peers is frowned upon in child culture. And I don't think that as adults we appreciate child culture a lot, like the stuff that children actually do, the thoughts that children actually have, the experiences that children actually undergo. I don't know if we really like investigate child culture enough. Um, we kind of run over them um, with with more so a, uh, a mindset that they just kids. What what could a kid do? What could a kid go through? They gonna be okay? They gonna get over it? Um, and that's obviously that's not the case. Young man had it. Um, remember the traumatic memory from being three years old and being taken away from his mom. Like kids exist. They live, they breathe, they remember. Um, the fact that we're not helping them go through and helping them process some of these more traumatic emotions, like that speaks to us. And then when you have a group, um, uh, multiple children who kind of share some of the same traumatic experiences, um, and all children have a child culture, but you have those particular um, those particular um, segments of the child population that develop a group together. Um, it makes total sense that they would engage in some of your more risky behavior. Um, they're still human, and you know, again, to appreciate Maslow, they still want to belong to a group. Once in the group, they still want to be seen and identified and create uh, achievement within the group. Mm-hmm. So, you know. It, you could say it's the blind leading the blind, but they're really helping each other out. Like it is, it is, it is, it is, it is um, supplemental um, 
coping. Like I don't really know how to cope on my own with my trauma, but belonging to this group actually does something that's emotionally positive for me, even if we doing negative things. Mm-hmm. It helps me cope. Belonging to this group helps me cope. Yeah. To the point where when you belong to the group, it's not necessarily even you don't even judge the group on what the group does. You judge the you judge people and individuals on how their beliefs and behavior acquiesce to the group. Mm-hmm. The group is right because I belong to it. And everybody else will be evaluated on wrong and right as they align with the group. And I think it's like that for a lot of us, you know what I'm saying? Until you get time, you know, to kind of contemplate. How do I feel about my space in this group and do I really want to belong to it? What is my motivation for being part, being a part of this population? What is my motivation for being, for wanting to be identified like this? Yeah, no. Um, I think that's enough. No, it was good. Uh, that's enough. You guys tune in. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you can follow us on um, Instagram at Go Ahead I'm Listening. Um, we're on Apple Podcasts now, um, Spotify, SoundCloud, we're on SoundCloud, um, but, you know, subscribe when the new episodes come out, um, you'll get an update and just let us know, reach out to us. You can DM us, um, if you're interested in being a guest, um, you want to come on the show, you have something to talk about um, some experience to share with us. Um, I think we all have a story. We all have um, things that we've been through. Um, and we just want to share with each other because I think that um, one of the things her and my brother touched on is the healing that we have to do. Um, just so much of us have so much healing and so much work. And um, and we just want to hear from everyone. We we genuinely believe in um, helping um, and helping us grow. And hopefully, this podcast is a platform for for that, if nothing else. Um, so, like we like to say, everybody go to therapy. Everybody go to therapy. We all got work to do. Um, we love y'all. I love you. I love you too. And um, we see y'all soon.